Okay, so this morning we're going to kick it off with a uh, discussion about vaccines, and we have a a really world-class expert here to provide that for us, Dr. Paul Gepfer. Paul has been uh, working in uh, the area of vaccines since the early to mid-1990s, and uh, he's going to talk to us today about the progress that we've had in the development of vaccines. A lot of it is what we've learned, uh, some hard lessons. We'll talk about some of the latest data from the Mosaic trial, but really focus a lot on what is an mRNA vaccine, how does it work, and what we can expect in the future. Paul, it's great to have you here. He's from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. That's all right. Thank you very much. Um, Just to give you my age, my comics were Calvin and Hobbes in the far side. And it hasn't been the same since. All right, so I'm going to talk to you about the mRNA vaccines uh, and what's that going to do to help us develop an HIV vaccine. So I served as consultant uh, a couple years ago for Janssen. Um, And these are the learning objectives. So I won't go over each one of these, but you can see these. Okay, so mRNA vaccines are a relatively new technology. They've been working on it for many, many years, actually. Um, And it was fortuitous that they were ready to be developed um, when the pandemic hit. And in fact, Pfizer was working on mRNA technology to develop an influenza vaccine. And they obviously thought, well, we better change course here. And so what's nice about this technology is it's rapid. That's, the, I think, the main thing that you can get out of this. It's the easiest technology to rapidly develop an antigen for a vaccine. And what you see then is you, once you get the sequence, you can actually uh, design the vaccine that takes long at all. Uh, it took a week from the time they found out that the, the, that the Chinese uh, published the COVID sequence. It took a week for Moderna and Pfizer to make vaccines. Then what they do is in vitro transcription, so they don't need any cellular technology to do this. They just use the enzymes, put it in a batch. They're able to make tons of RNA, purify it. The the huge leap actually has been that once you purify it, mRNA is so highly degradable that you cannot use that as a vaccine alone. It wouldn't be able to even get into the cell. But they've been, the nanoparticle technology um, has been transformative um, and so they are able to put that together then they can purify it and then you have your RNA vaccine. So this is a bit of a complicated side but it's sort of immunology 101. Um, it just shows you that the mRNA vaccines and other vaccines like it, the uh, recombinant um, attenuated viral vaccines like the one by Janssen and the, the the uh, Sputnik vaccine by um, Russia as well do the same thing, where you can get the transport the genetic material inside the cell, in this case mRNA, that is actually then is picked up by that cell, and then it uses the cell as a protein factory, which is really very, very helpful. So it makes whatever genetic material you give it, makes it exactly like it would, uh, for instance, if it COVID infected, it would make the same thing as well. Um, and so that, make, that makes it exactly like what COVID looks like. Um, so anyway, it makes this, uh, it, it does a couple things. 
It makes the protein, some of it gets to the surface, it's recognized by its B cells you see there. Uh, that makes antibodies. It's also then broken down and it's presented by two different types of molecules, class one and class two, MHC or HLA. And then that actually helps induce helper T cell responses and killer T cell responses. So you're basically um, hitting all parts of the adaptive immune response, um, which is a bit different than if you just give like an inactivated vaccine or a protein-based vaccine. Can't do that. So that's another benefit of these mRNA vaccines. So just to dumb it down a little bit, um, this is borrowed from the New York Times when they were talking about how vaccines work. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 encodes 30 plus different proteins. Because SARS-1 came around, we figured out that the Achilles heel of COVID was the spike protein. And so a scientist then took the mRNA from the genetic material that encodes the spike protein, um, made the vaccine encased in a lipid nanoparticle. When that's injected into somebody's deltoid muscle, it's picked up mainly by muscle cells. These muscle cells then, as I described earlier, are the protein production factory. Uh, and you make proteins uh, which then go to the surface of the cell. They're picked up and recognized by other what are called professional antigen-presenting cells. Those are given to T cells. The T cells interact with the B cells, and then you make antibodies. And what you hope is that these antibodies are uh, good, and you hope that they're neutralizing antibodies. But importantly, again, three arms of the immune system, antibodies, neutralizing antibodies, Helper T cell responses, which help antibodies be better. Killer T cell responses, which kill infected cells. So <clears throat> these mRNA technologies now being being used on a number of of, of vaccines. Um, so obviously COVID or SARS-CoV-2, influenza, they're working on it. Um, RSV is interesting, and you may have heard that that we've had some success with RSV vaccines now as well children and older adults, uh, Ebola vaccines, rabies vaccines, and then you can see obviously HIV vaccines as well. We're working on using mRNA technology. So this is the mRNA-1273 vaccine, which was produced by Moderna uh, as part of um, Operation Warp Speed. Um, and, and this was uh, mirrored by uh, Pfizer, uh, by their product as well. And what you do then in these studies, obviously, is you give half the individual vaccine, half get placebo, and what you see is in the placebo group, that's the rate of infection, and you can see that rate's pretty high and it's pretty fast. Um, and then the um, mRNA vaccine recipients shown in blue there, that's their rate of infection. Uh, and what you can, what's not shown on here is that um, after just the first dose, which is that first arrow, it was actually already 91% effective two doses, it was 94% effective. So it was a highly effective vaccine. It's amazing, they did two different studies. Pfizer and Moderna did two different studies. They both came up with almost the exact same efficacy in their vaccine products. Okay, so here's our audience response question. Um, I'll let you read that. How were COVID vaccines developed so rapidly? answer that question.
Okay, go ahead and go. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, no, so, so this isn't recombinant protein technology, this is mRNA technology. Um, so, so the answer is actually that, um, that, that uh, we were able to enroll people very rapidly. Um, and, and we were able to enroll people rapidly and there was a lot of infection going on when we enrolled people. So we were able to determine the efficacy very quickly. If you remember, the vaccine study started in July and we determined an answer in November, which is extremely um, And so recombinant protein technology, this is good that you answered it this way, it takes longer uh, to develop. And in fact, we had a vaccine that was FDA approved by emergency use authorization before the Novavax and the Sanofi trials even uh, really just got started because it takes longer to develop this technology. So that's an important point. Again, mRNA vaccines can be developed very rapidly. Okay, so this is the vaccine timeline. Um, I'll, I can show you, all, you can look at all this, the vaccine timeline. I think what's important is Early on, people thought, well, how could you develop this vaccine very, so rapidly? Remember, it was in less than a year that this vaccine was approved. And the prior record was the measles, uh, I'm sorry, the mumps vaccine, which took five years to develop. And so I told you that the target protein, we knew what to target very quickly. Uh, there was work with being done with RSV, actually, that was pertinent to COVID as well, for SARS-CoV-2, which worked and was there available rapid identification and sequencing, rapid mRNA technology. Uh, we actually combined phase one and two studies. That we got the green light, we just went on to phase two. And again, a large number of enrollment and a large number of infections. Uh, remember that China, they went on lockdown and they couldn't test any of their vaccines in China because they didn't have any infections. Um, and they actually relied on other countries to test so these are the vaccines that were um, uh, developed by the help of the U.S. government. You'll notice that the Pfizer's not on here, but there were six different vaccines that were all shown to be highly effective. And you can see that the vaccines that by Moderna and Pfizer and J&J all received emergency use authorization. They've all subsequently been fully FDA approved. AstraZeneca likely won't apply for FDA approval. Novavax now has an EUA, and they likely will get full FDA approved as well, and that's the technology. And Sanofi, um, I don't know if they're going to get FDA approved for reasons that I don't quite understand. But I, I'm not going to talk about it here except to say that the Sanofi vaccine and the Novavax vaccine recombinant proteins are just as effective as the mRNA vaccine, but it took much longer to develop. So you've probably seen all this. This is real-world effectiveness, and this is one example of this, and this is, of course, back when the virus matched the vaccine fairly well. And what you can see here is that the BioNTech vaccine, Pfizer, and the mRNA vaccine by Moderna have 90% efficacy in, in emergency department visits and reduction hospitalizations. The J&J &J vaccine, um, uh, it's less effective, but it was just, remember, a single dose. They subsequently did a study with two doses, and it's as effective as the other vaccines. For the reasons we won't get into, the J&J &J vaccine is not recommended as the first vaccine.
vaccine in this country. So the other thing, as you know, is these vaccines, a lot of people think, well, they don't work to prevent infection anymore. And that is largely true, although you do get some benefit. Um, and the problem is with these the, the different types of uh, variants that are around, they don't work quite as well. But the uh, protection against hospitalizations and, and death is still robust. And you can see the numbers here. If you've never been vaccinated and you get uh, vaccines, it's 16 times higher than unvaccinated. And if you get the reach of protein boost, it's less, less benefit, but it's still 2.6 higher rates than if you hadn't gotten the boost of hospitalization. And you can find this data daily on the CDC website. So next question then, what is the most difficult challenge in developing an HIV vaccine? Very good. So you guys are getting better at this. So the vaccine, HIV vaccines um, cannot, we have not been able to figure out how to induce a broadly neutralizing HIV vaccine. I'll talk about that in a second. So we've tried all these different types of approaches. I won't go into too many of these, but um, a couple of them. All except two, we don't use whole and activated, and we don't use live attenuated for safety reasons. But we've tested all these different things, uh, and we've been doing this since the late 1980s, and we do not have a vaccine. Um, antibodies are the primary correlate to vaccine protection, and neutralizing antibodies are the best at that. And um, as, you know, as I've just told you, we had that, we have that for COVID. And the reason that neutralizing antibodies work really well is because they work like spears. You only need the antibody, you don't need anything else. Um, and so in this situation, SARS-CoV-2, as you know, uses the ACE2 receptor to get into cells. If you can develop antibodies that bind that ACE2 receptor, they will not allow that uh, the virus to then attach to the cell. And because viruses need to get into the cell to live, they die very quickly when you neutralize them. So those are the best types of antibodies you want. So for HIV, the only way to really induce neutralizing antibodies is to use the surface protein or the GP1. Um, and the other ones you can use for supportive measures, but um, again, it's similar to COVID in that you, you need the surface protein. In COVID, it's the spike protein, and HIV, it's the op. So the current technology that we have can induce neutralizing antibody responses, but there are a couple things. It's very, um, it's very narrow response, and they only induce responses towards the viruses that are shown on the left. So this is a graph that shows you a bunch of different viruses that were taken from HIV-infected individuals, and they show you the ability of, of uh, antibody to neutralize them. So tier one, tier two, tier three, and it's sort of like a bell-shaped curve. The majority of them are tier two viruses. Tier one are the easiest to neutralize. Tier three are the hardest to neutralize. Tier two, the in between, we can develop antibodies that can we can develop vaccines that can induce antibodies to neutralize the easy to neutralize tier one viruses. Um, 
and we just now barely scratching the surface of tier two, but only a few of them. A lot more, that's our big problem. So we've done studies testing the efficacy of sort of tier one neutralization. We thought that T cells would be effective as well. Um, we did the first trial was an antibody only, induced antibodies only, induced killer T cells only, neither one of those worked. The third trial, more or less, was the a tie trial that actually showed 31% effectiveness. So people were very excited about this because it induced T cells and antibodies. However, um, we, it took us about 10 years to repeat that trial in a country that had ongoing uh, infections in South Africa. You can see that unlike the, uh, the COVID vaccine trial that I showed you, this, there's no separation between vaccines. Uh, and this study was done in South Africa. And you may have heard recently I, the Mosaico trial, which was, again, the similar phase of the efficacy study in the United States, North America, and some in Europe, where it, again, didn't show any efficacy. I will show you the, the graph, but it's the same as this, the placebo and the vaccine didn't. So it was very disappointing, um, but we think this is the problem. Viral diversity of HIV is just tremendous. And you can see the, on the left, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and right now, it's, very, it's not very diverse. We hear about these, these variants all the time, but it's nothing compared to HIV, which you see there in green. Hep C is also incredibly diverse as well. Influenza is as well, but fortunately for influenza, that diversity um, is, is changes over time and you can target a few of them every year, which is what we do with the vaccine. Fortunately for HIV, there's tens of thousands of different strains. Every one of those can cause AIDS. And you have to so one thing that's interesting is these broadly neutralizing antibodies, which is we think we need, do occur in about a quarter of individuals who are chronically HIV infected. And this is a bit of a complicated side, but we use those red antibodies, which are elite cross-reactive neutralizing antibodies. You see on the x-axis is it takes at least one year to develop those, and really to be broadly reactive, it takes two to three years. So vaccines, you know, what we've done with vaccines, all that we can do with vaccines right now is replicate goes on as a natural process. We want to replicate people that do best post-infection. So COVID, for instance, 90% of people really well following COVID, they get rid of it, they have no problems with the vaccine, that's what we're With HIV, we can try and replicate this, but it's a daunting task because it takes over three years and somebody who's well. The way this happens is if somebody gets, in, uh, an individual gets infected with, usually a single virus gets an HIV infection. Uh, they develop a response to it, the virus mutates, Another response that mutates again, so on and so forth, until you get broadly neutralizing long time. And interestingly enough, it doesn't mean everything. So what what the field has done is they've taken these antibodies, they've made um, monoclonal B cells to make these antibodies that are high potent and broadly reactive. We took one of those antibodies that we thought was incredibly potent and reactive and did a study, did passive immunization. So this was given IV every two months to individuals to see if it prevented HIV infection. And overall, 
it didn't work, even though it was a broadly neutralizing antibody, except it worked in a subset of individuals who were challenged, if you will. Now remember, we didn't challenge people, but they were, um, they were uh, challenged naturally as part of their uh, sexual activities. Um, and people who were challenged viruses that are easy to neutralize, they were protected. So what happens here is the viruses that were easy to neutralize, the people in the placebo got them, but the people who got these antibodies did not get them. So it was protective in that subset of people. And so I think the idea now is, just like antiretroviral therapy, we can't just give one. We need at least two, maybe three. Unfortunately, there's a bunch more that are being developed. And the next phase in the prevention trial for, for antibodies is a passive immunization study. We will combine at least two, maybe three, broadly neutralizing antibodies to see if the overall intensity. So now, that's giving passive immunization, which is very difficult. You'd, you know, it, it's sort of like PrEP, um, and there are methods that possibly in the future that maybe you could give this every six months, which would be nice, and maybe even longer, which would be great. But ideally, you want to have active immunization where you want And so the idea here is that how can we do this? And we're, what we're trying to do now is to mirror what goes on in an HIV-infected person with, with using special envelopes. And what happens is you start with a very immature envelope that induces very immature B cells. But those B cells then can go on and, and be sort of shepherd into producing broadly neutralizing antibodies. And this is what that shows. Um, so you start with this one on the left, which is sort of your first part and you start the ball rolling, uh, and then you keep vaccinating different types of envelopes, and then eventually the hope is that you'll uh, get a broadly neutralized. So this is a, a study that was published uh, just at the end of last year in science, and it was very exciting in that it started, we are able to start the ball rolling now. So now we have a vaccine um, that that is able to induce the very beginnings of a broadly neutralizing antibody, although that antibody is not yet broadly neutralized. But we were able to start the ball rolling. Um, and this is a very complicated way they did this. You vaccinate people, you sort their B cells that are specific to the vaccine, to the uh, antigen in the vaccine. You do a lot of sequencing, then you produce the antibody, and then you do a bunch of tests to show that this uh, response was very much like what you get in the early stages of some people who are HIV infected who then go on to develop broadly neutralized. So just to put it in perspective, we, it's a long way to go, and this is where we are right now. And this is for one antibody, and we would, in order to do this for an HIV vaccine, we need, we need to do this for um, several antibodies, not just one antibody. So um, as you can imagine, this is a, a large hurdle insurmountable, but it's going to take a lot of studies and it's going to take a lot of iteration in vaccine design, which then gets us to the mRNA vaccine. Um, so the mRNA vaccine can rapidly deliver complex multi-part immunogens. Um, and so from an HIV perspective, um, uh, you can actually express these in an envelope, nanoparticle, and they're folded well, and they have um, optimal stabilized mutations. So you can put in the mutations that you need to make this envelope exactly the way you want. 
And um, it shows that you can actually express some binding neutralizing, uh, broadly neutralizing. Um, you can do this with mRNA. Um, and this, it has in studies now elicited what are called tier two neutralizing antibodies. Remember, the majority of the viruses that are circulating in the world are tier two viruses. And so this is very exciting, although we need to be able to um, neutralize most of them. It's only a few tier two. And again, you, these can induce some monoclonal antibodies with key mutations that can actually neutralize heterologous strains. So this is really the take-home slide as to how um, these vaccines are so important, mRNA vaccines, and how they're going to help us with an HIV vaccine design. And that is that mRNA vaccines allow a rapid iterative vaccine design. Um, and so there are multiple vaccine targets. Uh, we don't know which one is going to be, we don't know um, if it's a combination of them. But what we're doing right now is that we're designing the gen, and the mRNA vaccine will help us design that very rapidly. As I said, you can design it, start making it within a week. You can produce it very rapidly within a month. Then you can test it, and we're doing a, a very rapid test to see if they do or they don't induce the exact response that we'd like them to do. We analyze the data look at it and then we modify it and then design another vaccine to improve upon it and so on and so forth. So remember, if you can, if you do this as an mRNA, you could within, once you get your, your clinical trial data back, it can take you a month, two months to make the new vaccine. If you did it with a protein, it would take you close to a year. Um, so, so it will help us to more rapidly do this. However, the problem with HIV is still that we don't know how to induce these broadly neutralizing antibodies. So just to conclude then, um, mRNA technology allows a rapid production of pathogen uh, immunogens. Um, and so, again, it's not just HIV, obviously COVID, and many other, um, many other um, uh, pathogens are, are useful for this technology. And in fact, I do believe that we will eventually have an mRNA vaccine for both influenza and COVID that can be given once a year. Um, hopefully that will happen soon. It may happen this year. Um, again, it was, it, it was essential in producing effective COVID vaccines in record time. Um, but HIV is a much more formidable pathogen due to its broad genetic diversity. Same with hepatitis C. Um, and we think now finally, after 30 years, that we must induce a broadly neutralizing antibody response. And again, mRNA technologies will help us with that in more rapidly developing. Uh, thank you very much. That was great, Paul. Uh, very clear, I guess hopeful if we look, take a long view. Um, we have a couple things. So I appreciate folks wearing their mask if they can while you're inside the room. If you don't have a mask, there's some out front. Um, questions, you can come to the microphones up here in front if you'd like, or you can just fill out a question card. I'm gonna kick off with two questions. We have about 10 minutes or so, 12 minutes and 57 seconds for question and answer here. Um, a lot of our patients, and maybe even a couple of people in the room, 
with the mRNA COVID vaccine say they're not safe. And, and specifically, they're looking at the um, adverse event reporting system at the FDA and trying to sort through these myriad of things of people dying from COVID vaccines and I'm not gonna get it or I'm not gonna have my relative take it. It's a very real question that we get, not certainly from patients, but we get it a lot at cocktail parties or if you're out at dinner with people and you get berated. So what's your straightforward answer about how we know about the safety of mRNA vaccines, especially related to COVID? Well, as I tried to uh, state in the talk, first of all, we did trials with COVID vaccines, and we did the trials. We didn't cut any corners on thousands upon thousands of people. However, um, that's really just tens of thousands of people. And so for rare events, you're not going to pick that up. But there is the VAERS system, uh, which is one system of determining uh, vaccine safetyness afterwards. And there's other systems like that. They did, in fact, the, the CDC developed one specifically for COVID vaccines, which many of you may have uh, put your information in uh, using, your, using your phone. Um, so there's that, and I'll get to that in a second. But remember, billions, literally billions of people have been vaccinated now with, with uh, mRNA vaccines. Um, so it's probably uh, been tested more than any other vaccine very rapidly. Um, and then the VAERS system is interesting. Anybody can put a claim in the VAERS system. So if, if, your, if your mother died uh, after getting a COVID vaccine, let's say, uh, you can put it in there. Um, and the problem is with everybody getting a vaccine, you know, you don't know if it's causing or just, or just an association or, or it just happened to happen. But what, what they have is they compare the VAERS system to what they have huge amounts of database, which what the incidence rates are for different problems. So what was picked up post-marketing for mRNA vaccines, for instance, was myocarditis. Uh, and it does happen, and it is a side effect. It's about one in 100,000 in general, uh, a bit more in young men. And the way they did that is they saw that the VAERS system, they saw an uptick in that, and they said, well, is that more than what we would expect? And they looked at the system, and indeed it was. And so then, then they dutifully showed that that is a, a potential side effect. Um, and you know, then you can talk about, well, is it still worth getting the vaccine? And it, there's lots of studies showing that it's still highly effective and safe, even in, in young men, to get the COVID vaccine, mRNA vaccine. Um, uh, and so that is done over and over again. For the J&J &J vaccine, it's the same thing. In the early studies, we did not see it. Actually, we saw one individual who may have had it, but it was just one in the 45,000 people we enrolled. It ended up being, again, this clotting disorder that occurs in about one in 100,000. And again, post-marketing, we saw that. Um, so there's a huge number of databases that look. Uh, and these are, these are among the safest vaccines we've ever I love your answer for a couple reasons, but mostly because you deliver it with such a calm demeanor. <laughs> we need to take notes on how to do that when we, when we talk about it. Um, and I think something you didn't say but is implied, and that is, for example, the myocarditis, one in 100,000, that is true. But we're not talking about vaccine versus nothing.
We're talking about the risk of a vaccine versus the risk of COVID. And COVID itself causes myocarditis, especially in young people, uh, men, and that rate is much higher than what you yeah. de novo from the vaccine, which is really what the risk benefit is all about. That's a good point. They, they did a study actually in um, college men in Indiana, University of Indiana, that at following COVID infection, um, about one to two percent. And so it usually resolves. Compare, yeah. It usually resolves. Compare that to one in. So that gets to another question real quick that just got in, but it's, is the goal of vaccination to prevent infection or to minimize disease progression and severity? And your answer is going to be it depends. Well, I think most vaccines do the latter. They prevent disease. Um, we were, <laughs> I think we were riding a bit of a high in the beginning that somehow the COVID vaccine is going. And it does do that, but that's not really how. Um, it, and especially these upper respiratory infections prevent disease and severity, and they're still highly. But in an HIV vaccine, we're looking to prevent infection. Well, we are. <laughs> and so that's another that's another difficulty. I, one thing I didn't get into. Uh, so T cells, CD8 T cells in particular, the killer T cells are what we think are important in sort of uh, helping with, once you're infected, helping you have a, a minor. And so we think that's what's happening with the COVID vaccine. Interestingly enough, even in the HIV vaccines where, indu where we induce these T cell responses, they don't seem to help with decreasing viral load, for instance, at all. And I don't understand why. Um, it, in a monkey model, you can actually do that. You can actually prevent, uh, you can actually control virus following back. But with the human studies, we haven't been able to do that. And that's another dilemma. That we're and just for the historical context, and we'll get to Dr. The vaccine, when it was released in December of, of um, actually for the first six months did reduce significantly infection. But that was against the original variant. And it was Provincetown um, in Massachusetts on Cape Cod, there was an and 75% of the people who got infected during that time were actually vaccinated. And that was the beginning of the first variant that we started seeing. And so that's when the protection against infection started to drift away, but there was still protection against severity of disease. So it depends. That. Just Joe, you're on from Chapel Hill. Um, Paul, first of all, that was a fabulous talk. Um, uh, one um, knock on RNA vaccines. So could you comment on that, in particular, when we think about, you know, Um, and we don't know why mRNA vaccines don't do and don't seem to induce durable. 
there are the best comparisons right now have been between the RNA vaccine, mRNA vaccine for COVID and the J&J vaccine, which is a recombinant attenuated viral DNA vaccine. And that actually doesn't induce as high responses, but they um, I think with HIV and the protein vaccines, they do induce durable So I think with HIV, right now, the way I, it could change, and we could figure out why they're not inducing long responses, and then maybe they will later on. It may be another adjuvant, maybe formulating the lipid nanoparticle, which is actually, and maybe making that better can result in durable response. Look at it more. However, even if we had none of that, you could figure out what vaccine immunogens you need using the mRNA technology, rapidly do that, and then make the protein components of that to use. But I, I can't imagine, even if we have protein long-lived responses, uh, vaccine, we wouldn't have to boost you. Here we have a question about pancytopenia as an adverse event of our mRNA vaccine. Um, I have, I mean, there are reports of that. I'm not sure it's been associated with that right now. Um, so one thing that any, a lot of vaccines do is they cause transient decrease in, uh, in some people in, in the counts in the peripheral blood. But the reason that is, is because what, if you have a robust immune response, the cells in your blood are going to that vaccine site to mount an immune response. And it's transient. If you look at it later, it comes back. Um, I, I'm not aware of anything where it's permanent pancytopenia. Right. So we'll finish with this question. Um, you mentioned the bivalent vaccine, just for clarity for folks who hadn't kept up with that. Basically, it's, it's part, there's two components in that vaccine. One is the original vaccine component going back to December of 20. And the next is a Omicron-like, uh, I think it's a B4 or 5 or something, That's right. uh, mRNA, so that you get uh, a boost with a virus that's actually, or por portions of virus that's actually circulating at the time. Those were given in September, October to a lot of people, not as many as maybe we like, but now the question's coming up, we're six months out from that, I have patients who are immunocompromised beyond just having HIV and being suppressed, but people who've had chemotherapy, especially rituxan and that type of thing. Who do you recommend right now? What do you say to them? Because I'm getting calls at six months, I want another booster. What are you saying? I think, uh, I was, I think that vaccine recommendations at this point have become personalized. Um, it really, <laughs> for COVID, because we, we don't live in a system now where there's nobody who's been infected. Um, many people have been infected. Many people have been vaccinated. So, for instance, if your per participant who you're counseling um, recently got infected, they have a very good boost with the most relevant strain. And it's clear that infection produces very good immunity as well. The best kind of immunity is hybrid immunity. So... If, if they just got infected, um, I would wait. And then it also depends on the, the level of severity. If, for instance, they're getting anti-B cell therapy because they've got a, a lymphoma or leukemia, it, 
vaccines aren't going to help that much. So it's, you're going to have to rely on other things. You're going to have to rely on maybe giving them a prescription of Paxlovid um, and have it on standby in case they, start, in case they get COVID. Um, uh, and so I think everybody, and, and the other issue is that everybody really should have gotten the bivalent vaccine because it, as I showed you, it does help. Uh, you, get, you have a better chance of not being in the hospital if you get it. However, it's like 10% of our population who needs it have gotten the bivalent vaccine. Right. Right. So really, it, it, you can't, you really, it, you have to sit down with your patient and talk to them honestly about what's going on and really tailor it to what their needs are and what, what their infection status is and their prior vaccination status. So what you heard Dr. Gifford just say is, to heck with the vaccine, just everyone go out and get infected no, with the most no, recent no. strain. <laughs> And then you got pristine immunity. Is that what you said? Well, okay, let me... I'm kidding, I'm, I'm kidding. Put no, your mask but on. This is important. <laughs> you know, infection does give you good immunity, but it also gives you a 10% hospitalization rate and a 1% death rate. Right. If you get vaccinated, you can avoid all that. And then if you happen to get infected after vaccine, then you'll have extra immunity with that. And that's the best way to go. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you, Paul, for especially your patience.